So um, I had this conversation with my parents a while back, and uh, it was about Moses. It was with my dad. And in fact, we've had this conversation many times. And it was about why Moses didn't get into the promised land. So I don't know if you guys uh, know this story, uh, but just in case you're unfamiliar. So there's an incident in Numbers 20 at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. And it's nearing the end of the 40 years of wandering. The Israelites come to the desert of Zin. There's no water. The community complains to Moses and Aaron. This, you know, it's not the first time this has happened. So Moses and Aaron, they go to God, and they're like, okay, God, what do we do? And God says, okay, go out and speak to the rock. And if you speak to the rock, then water is going to come out of the rock. And so Moses, he goes out. He's supposed to speak to the rock, but the Israelites are all complaining. They're like, oh, you know, Moses, like, where's the water? You just sent us out here. Remember, they, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they come out to the wilderness where God is providing for them. He's bringing literal bread out of heaven. He's providing water for them. He's providing food for them, but they're like complaining. So Moses, seemingly out of anger, he says, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then he Bam, he hits the rock twice. Like, bam, bam. Right? And the water comes out of the rock. Now, because of this, God immediately tells Moses and Aaron, because he, remember, he told them to speak to the rock, but Moses got mad, he hits the rock. Because they failed to trust him and to honor him as holy, that they would not get into the promised land. They wouldn't go to Canaan. So my dad, I distinctly remember when I was a kid, we used to do family service. We were like, that was the kind of family that we were, very religious. And my dad actually gave devotion on this passage a number of times because this is literally the only devotion I remember that my dad actually gave because it was in Korean, and my Korean's not great, but I distinctly remember this. And he still brings it up. You know, he watches my, kid twice, my kids twice a week, and he, he brings up this passage. And my dad always says, if only Moses didn't do that, right? Like, if only he didn't hit that rock. All he had to do was talk to the rock. And I have this exact same conversation with my mom, actually, not about this passage, but about David, King David, and Bathsheba and his sin. And it's like, she always says, like, oh, if only King David didn't do that. Right? He was so good. Like Moses, he was so, he was just, he was on this trajectory, right? He was like, being held up, and if only he didn't do that. And my mom says, you know, same thing about King David, if only he didn't do that. And this conversation more recently revealed to me two ways that my parents would look at hardship, sin, suffering, really anything bad, all bad things. The first way is regret. It's like this deep regret. And the, my parents have been through a lot of hard things in their lives. My dad's dad died before, he, like he never knew him, basically, his biological father. And then he had a stepfather later in life, and then that father also died. Um, and my dad never went to college. My mom never really, my mom's mom also died when she was very young. And she lived with her stepmom most of her life, and she never even completed middle school. Like, my parents came here with nothing, you know, no education, and... They really scraped to make a life for themselves. 
and we went through all kinds of financial troubles and you know foreclosure and we like lived in this tiny place i have a brother and sister like five people in this little 550 it was like 600 square foot apartment me my brother and my sister shared a room together you know when i was in high school and i used to sleep in the living room with you know with the roaches and stuff and i know roaches were my roommates i hate roaches now but, you know like i know why my dad and my mom, they think about this so much, right? Because they think, ah, oh, if only I didn't do that, right? If only that never happened to me. My mom still to this day, sometimes when we talk about stuff, she's like, yeah, you know, it's because I lost my mom at a young age. My mom's in her 70s. And she's still talking about what happened to her when she was a little kid, that that is defining for her. This regret makes us want to, in typical, I'm like debating whether I should say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. In typical, like Asian fashion, okay, is to just bury this. Like, I need to bury this deep down inside, and I need to just move on fast. That's one way to deal with bad things. The other way, I think, which is more the, uh, the pro-athlete way, is to vindicate the bad things, right? It's to, like, prove everybody wrong. Oh, yeah, I grew up like this, but that's not who I am. You know, I grew up poor. I'm going to be the richest person on the planet, right? The, the rapper route, I guess. You know, I grew up, you know, it was hard for me. I grew up like soft. I'm going to be tough. You know, the MMA route. It's like there's all different kinds of ways that we say, well, I'm going to prove myself. Now, I don't really think that either of those ways is what God has for us. Those aren't the ways that God wants us to deal with bad things including hardship, suffering, and even sin. So what does, how does God want us to approach those things, bad things, I'm just using this kind of catch-all term, in a way that will lead us to trust in God with hope? That's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to... uh, the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to start in verse 15, and we will read through verse 21. Genesis chapter 50, verses uh, 15 through uh, 21. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 50 is the last, book, uh, last chapter of Genesis, so... I'm going to read this for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll discuss it. So this is God's word, and it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of, your, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph, in his response to his brothers, he says three things. I'm going to get to it in a second. First, I just want to refresh your memory in case you're not uh, too familiar with Joseph's life. So Joseph is the second youngest son of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? And he is one of two sons of Rachel, who is the one that um, Jacob actually works for, right? If you remember, he goes, he works for his uncle Laban, and he works seven years to marry Rachel, and then <laughs> the uncle, shady uncle, pulls a switcheroo. It's Leah instead of Rachel. And then so he marries Leah first, the older sister, and then he works another seven years so that he can marry Rachel. I mean, he marries Rachel immediately, but then works another seven years. He works. So this is the woman that he worked 14 years for. I don't know if any of you, <laughs> you know, the married people in this room, if your wife was like, yeah, you know, 14 years, work 14 years for my dad, and then, you know, you can have me. It's like, that's not our, that's, <laughs> that's not what's happening <clears throat> in our time. But just so you have an idea, right? So Joseph, I mean, uh, so Jacob really loved Rachel, and she was barren for a long time and then only had two sons, uh, Joseph and Benjamin, right? So this is the oldest son of Rachel who Jacob favored, so his brothers hated him. Basically, his brothers uh, beat him. They throw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. Okay, he ends up in slavery in Egypt. He lives for basically 13 years between uh, Potiphar's house and jail. He's falsely accused. He's convicted, ends up in jail. We don't know exactly how many years he did each of those things, but he spent basically a lot of time suffering. So from age 17 to age 30, He's in a foreign land. He's away from his family. He spends a lot of that time in jail. At age 30, he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt because there's this famine coming. God wants Joseph to help people through this basically global famine. We'll just call it that. And so for seven years, there is a seven years of plenty. They store up grain. And then two years into the famine, at age 39... He sees his brothers again. Okay. <clears throat> now, he suffered for, from age 17 to 39, more than half his life, away from his family because his brother sold him into slavery. And at this point, of course, <clears throat> they come to him. They're desperate. Famine in their land. Joseph could, I mean, he could kill him. He has that much power. He's wealthy. He's the second most powerful person in what is, at this time, probably the most powerful country in the world because they have all the grain. Everybody needs it. But he forgives them. And he moves them to Egypt. He gives them good land. He takes care of their whole family. Now, this passage in Genesis 50 this is almost 20 years after that, 
So now Joseph is 56. This is 17 years later. Jacob has died. And so the brothers say, hey, it may be that now Joseph is finally going to exact his revenge. So in their minds, they're like, maybe this is like a Count of Monte Cristo situation, right? Like maybe Joseph has just been biding his time this whole time, right? He rose to power. We're all, you know, we're all safe and secure now. So they're, they're panicking. They're freaking out. Like Jacob's gone. Dad is gone now. Maybe he was just waiting for dad to be gone so that he could finally exact his revenge. So they're scared. So they, they send this message to him. They're like, oh, you know what dad said before he died? Like, oh, you should forgive us. I mean, there's no evidence that he actually said that. None in the Bible. So it seems like they're kind of just making this up, right? They're scared. And they're like, oh, let's just, let's just, tell, let's just tell Joseph that, um, you know, d- dad wanted to, <laughs> you know, dad had this like on his deathbed, he had this wish that you should forgive us. So a few things we see in Joseph's response. We see that Joseph is not going to go the route of, you know, revenge, obviously, right? He actually doesn't exhibit great regret over what has happened in his life. He's not hung up about it. He's not thinking about it constantly, right? So we see three things in Joseph's response. Here's the first thing we see. He refuses God's seat. He refuses God's throne, God's seat of judgment, right? He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Do not fear. He says, am I God? Am I in the place of God? It's crazy because after all this, who's, who's the one that has been harmed in this whole story? It's Joseph, right? Joseph, it, it doesn't, we don't really see from the Bible that he did anything wrong. Maybe he was kind of a presumptuous kid. We see that maybe in the beginning of the story. He's talking about these dreams where, like, everybody's bowing to him. But it seems like those were real dreams that God gave him. He's just sharing them. That's why they got jealous. They hated him. He was favored by his father. It's not really his fault. So he's harmed in the story. He spends 13 years in prison and, like, as a slave. And then he forgives his brothers. And they come to him and say, Hey, but we still feel insecure. You comfort us. We're the ones who harmed you, but we need you to comfort us and make us feel better about what we did. We need you to make us feel better about our sin against you. We don't feel like you really forgave us. Did you really forgive us? If that were me, (laughs) my name is Joseph, but (laughs) I mean, I would have responded very differently because I'm an ugly sinner, and I would have been like, what? After all that, I forgive you. I moved you over here. I fed you and your family, been taking care of you for like 20 years, and still you're coming now? You're trying to use our dead dad as some kind of leverage, against, like emotional manipulation against me, and say, now you need me again to comfort you when you're the one who made all the mistakes, when you're the one who sold me into slavery? But Joseph doesn't do that. How does he not do that? 
He says, I'm not God. What Joseph learned throughout his life is that it does no good for him to try to sit in God's seat, to try to be the moral arbiter of everyone. Now, be careful, because we are quick to do that. Whenever you see a vacancy on that seat, who's the moral judge of the world, right? Oh, you want to grab that seat. (laughs) You want to jump on that seat. I saw it so much, and I'm guilty of it too. I mean, during COVID in particular. Okay, all of a sudden, it's like COVID happened. I mean, (laughs) granted, it's a global pandemic. It hasn't really happened a lot, (laughs) not, not in our lifetimes. But I mean, you know, vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, Democrat, Republican, you know, pro-police, anti-police. Everyone had letters that they were supporting, and everybody was like, you better support my letters. You better support all the things I support. And if you don't, well, I'm going to judge you because I'm the judge. I'm the judge of everybody. Everybody has to think what I think. You have to think what I think about masks. You have to think what I think about meaning, not meaning, everything. Yeah, when there's a vacancy on that seat, trust me, you want it. Every time anybody does anything, right? (laughs) And for those of you who aren't parents, when you become a parent, yeah, this is another thing, right? It's like the way people parent their kids. You're like, ah, God, look at these guys. What are are these noobs doing over here? Like, oh, my gosh. Please, please, your, your child's licking the slide. Please stop him. You know, like, why are you letting him do that? Like, and there's all these things you want to just start telling people. Don't do that. Don't do that with your dog. Ma'am, please, you know, like, please, please pick up after your dog. Like, we, that's what we want, right? We want to tell everybody what to do, how to live, what they're supposed to. Like, and let me just say, I don't care if you do, you know, like, whatever you do with your life, like, that's up to you, right? Should we judge actions according to the word of God? Of course, of course. We are meant, if we're Christians, if we're believers, we are meant to hold each other, right, to a a certain standard. But the things I'm talking about isn't that, right? It's not even sin. It's just, like, what I think. I just think everybody should think what I think. Be careful, knowing that the inclination of your heart, even when you are trying to, because the Bible says, look, we should judge each other in the church, right? We should exercise sober biblical judgment. But as you do that, know this. One, you're not in the place of God. That doesn't put you in God's seat, right? Meaning you should do it with some humility, in love, with compassion, And secondly, be careful knowing that the inclination of your heart, the natural inclination of your heart, is not humble, sober judgment. It's absolutely not. The inclination of our hearts is to gain an edge on other people, a moral edge, self-righteousness, self-justification. That is the inclination of our hearts. And look, Joseph, he recognizes, like, I'm not God. I'm not in the place of God. He refuses God's throne, even when it's granted to him right in front of him. They say, do whatever you want. Whatever you see is right. He says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Secondly, Joseph recognizes God's hand 
He recognizes God's hand. He says in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, a couple things we have to recognize. He does not just forget what they did to him. Right? He doesn't say, ah, uh, you know, I think it was a mistake, right? Like, you guys accidentally threw me into a cistern. You accidentally sold me into slavery. A lot of things were going on at that time, and so it's fine. It's cool. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, you, as for you, you did mean it for evil. However, God meant it for good. That is a very difficult thing to balance for us to understand. This is a bit, you know, counterintuitive. How can those things be held together? Now, Joseph, remember, he's, he's 56, right, at this point in the story. So he's been through a lot of stuff. You got, he, he was in Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard. And somehow, in that situation, as a slave, essentially, he rose, to, he rose the ranks in that situation. And then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He runs away, is thrown in jail. And then in jail, he, he, he kind of rises the ranks in jail. And then he interprets this guy's dream. And that guy goes away, forgets about him, leaves him in jail. And then later, when Pharaoh needs his dream interpreted, then they call, that's when he remembers. He says, oh, yeah, there's this guy I met in jail who interpreted my dream. And it came out, it turned out to be true. And that's when Joseph is pulled out of jail, and he goes from a prisoner in jail to the second most powerful person in the country. So Joseph, what he recognizes, what he understands is God's doing something. He knows those things aren't because Joseph was educated in a certain way, because he, he learned a lot of stuff, you know, in jail. This isn't like a, you know, slumdog millionaire situation, right, where, like, the things that happened in his life, it, like, comes back later, and it's, it's particularly relevant, so he knows all the answers to the questions. You know, I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but it's like, that's what it is, right? Uh, he's, he's, lived, he's lived the most, like, uh, what is it? like fortunately coincidental life where everything, the things that have happened to him happen to be the answers to the, you know, the questions on like coincidentally or whatever, right? And so that, that's not it with Joseph. God's just watching over him and the Bible repeats it. He's successful because God's with him. In fact, Pharaoh brings him to power because he's like, I don't know what's going on, but what I see in you, he doesn't say like, oh, you're particularly qualified. No, he's like, I see God's with you. He's doing something. He's using you. So I need that. And that's why Joseph rises to power. There is um, strong evidence, okay, scientific evidence, that most people think they do most of the work. Do you guys know this? Uh, so researchers have asked authors of uh, multi-author papers how, what percentage of work they did on the paper. And the combined answer is always more than 100%, right? So it's like if you had an accurate view, right, you would say like, oh, I did 50. If it's two people, you would say like, I did 50%, and the other person would say like, oh, I did 50%. Or if you can actually, if, if you're very accurate, like I did like, you know, uh, 40%, and then the other person would say, well, I did 60%. That would add up to 100%, right? 
But that's not what happens. The combined answer is always more than 100%, meaning you both see the work you did as more than the other. This is also true in spouses. They were asked, like, how much of the housework do you do, right? And the answer is like, you know, 500%. No, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't even make sense. But, you know, it's like that's kind of how it is, though, right? You're like, I do a lot. You know, I clean, I cook, you know, I'm vacuuming. Like, I'm in the bathrooms cleaning. I'm doing this. I'm with the kids, right? I mean, I'm, I'm detailing the car. Like, they're never detailing. You know, it's like these are the things, right? You think, oh, well, I'm doing. Well, why does that happen? Because all the things you do, obviously, you know what you do. You know every single time you took out the trash. You know every single time you did the dishes. You know every single time you stepped on something and then you picked it up. You're like, oh, gosh, like who left this here, right? You know every single time, but your spouse doesn't. They only know the things that they did. So everybody views what they do. That's, just, that's true in church too, right? Somebody set up these chairs, right? How many people in here knew, know who set up the chairs today? probably only the people who set them up, right? Everybody else is like, I don't know. I wasn't here. I was outside, you know, getting some coffee. So you know what you did. Nobody else knows what you did. So this leads to something called egocentric bias. You think, everyone thinks, this is a cognitive bias by which people rely too heavily on their own perspective and their own interpretation of events, evaluating situations, evaluating other people's behaviors because obviously all of us know what we have done and what we have been through. None of us knows completely what other people have done and what other people have been through. Joseph recognizes, hey, this isn't me, right? I didn't pull myself out of the situation I was in. I didn't pull myself out of prison. God did it. God's been with me. God's been leading me. God's been guiding me. Do you see that? If you're, if you're a Christian today, you know, if you say, I, I have faith in Jesus, I follow Jesus, do you see what God's doing in your life? Because either you're not paying attention or God's not doing anything. Do you think it's possible that God's not doing anything? Or do you think it's possible that maybe, maybe you're missing it? One thing I will say is that it takes a long time, usually, to get to where Joseph's at. He's 56 at this point in the narrative. Is anyone in here 56? Uh, I don't want to call you out like that. My bad. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't even have said that. <laughs> but... If we're not, (laughs) if we're under that age, right, you might think, okay, well, how long is it going to take for me to get to the point where I can look at my life and understand how God has been working it for good? I get that, right? Sometimes we have that feeling. But here's the thing. What Joseph needed to learn, what Joseph learned throughout this whole period What he recognizes in this moment is not, what he recognizes in this moment is that what he needed was never more of God's plan, right? Throughout his whole life, God never really told him, 
all right, here's what's going to happen, Joe. You know, you're going to get thrown into a pit. You're going to get sold into slavery. You're going to spend 13 years here. You're going to, you know, then you'll rise to power, and then I'm going to give you some dreams. You're going to have to interpret them. And then, ooh, you know, big plot twist. Your family's going to come back, right? They're going to come back into your life. you got to forgive them and then, you know, move them here. And then 20 years later, another thing's going to happen. No. None of God's plan is revealed to Joseph. He's just taking it as it's happening. When he rises to the second rank, you know, in Egypt, he's like, oh, shoot. All right. (laughs) Oh, so like the past 13 years makes a little sense now. I see why I had those dreams when I was a kid. I see why two years ago in prison you had me interpret that guy's dream. But for two years, what was he doing? He's just like, God, what the heck was that? (laughs) This guy comes. I interpret his dream. He gets out. And then what? I'm just back here? What, What the... Joseph never needed to learn to trust the plans of God. He needed to learn to trust in the God of plans. He needed to learn to trust the planner. Right? That's what he learned all those years. He's like, hey, I don't really know what's going to happen. But here's what I know. God's with me. If God's with me, it doesn't really matter what's going to happen. I don't need to know how this is all going to turn out. I don't need these answers from God. Like, oh, but what am I supposed to do, God? Where am I going to live? How many kids, God? You know, how many bedrooms, God? How many years do I have to be at this place and then I'm going to move on to the next place? Where am I supposed to live? Where am I supposed to go? When it comes to your life, God's intention is not to give you the blueprint. It's to teach you to trust the architect, the designer, him. Recognize God's hand. Find his purpose, his sanctifying and his self-glorifying purpose. Here's the final thing. Respond with God's love. Now, the text tells us What Joseph says, he says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, again, at this moment in the narrative, if, you know, if it were me, I would be, I would totally be thinking, all right. Like, just imagine, if it's a movie, right, you're watching this movie and it's, like taken or something, you know? And then they come, they're all like desperate. They're like, oh, please, you know, forgive us. You know, what, what is Liam Neeson going to do, right? Like, what is John Wick going to do in this situation? It's like, oh, they're desperate. They're coming to him for mercy, right? Did you show mercy? No, you're not going to show no mercy, right? Because you wouldn't go watch that movie. That's not an entertaining movie. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph, you know what's crazy? Joseph weeps. Joseph weeps. What does Joseph have to weep about? Is he weeping out of guilt? Is he weeping out of shame? No, because he didn't do anything wrong. He's weeping out of compassion because he's like, brothers, you spent almost 20 years living in this insecurity, thinking, oh, no, How is this going to turn out? 
Is he, did he really forgive us? Am I really forgiven? Did we do enough? Have we, have we paid him enough back? Like we've been in Egypt these years and we try to be nice and we try to be good and we try to, you know, give. We try to be better brothers. Because when we were kids, we totally were not good brothers. And Judah's thinking, you know, like, ah, oh, you know, I should have been stronger. And Reuben's thinking, I should have been, I should have said something. I shouldn't have let this happen. And so for their whole lives, Joseph's 56, his brothers are in their 60s and, you know, they're in their 60s at this point. Till their 60s, they're still living under this insecurity. They're still thinking, oh, is this going to turn out for good? How is this going to turn out? We read this passage today, right, at the top of service, um, Romans 8. And I'm going to start in verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like Joseph, Jesus was tempted, betrayed, sold, abandoned. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused and convicted. But unlike Joseph, Jesus didn't get out of prison. He suffered and died an excruciating death, having lived in the eyes of the world, a largely unsuccessful life. He had no wife, no children, no legacy, no wealth, nothing to leave behind. The God of the universe was rejected and crushed by his own creation, his own children. That is the greatest injustice in human history because he, unlike Joseph, Joseph seems fairly blameless in his narrative, but he was still human. He was still a sinner. But Jesus was completely without sin. He never did anything wrong. And yet, on the worst day in the history of the world, do you know what we call that today? We call it Good Friday. Why? Because on the cross, he paid the price for all of us. And in the midst of his suffering, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because he knew that those who were crucifying him, that those who were killing him, that those who were unjustly murdering him, meant it for evil, but God meant it for the ultimate good. Now, Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. He didn't stay shamed. God exalted him to the highest place, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That 
the worst evil ever, God turned for good. What more assurance do you need that God can turn everything for your good? Than that the death of his own son was for our good. I don't want us to see hardship, suffering, sin in our past as something that needs to be buried or something that needs to be vindicated. It is and really will remain till we die something that God will turn for good, something that will be part of our story that we will see for some of us in this life, for some of us, maybe not until we actually see Jesus face to face, when we will see God working throughout all of history, and we will see, wow, this is all ultimately for good and for his glory. Trust in that God. Church, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you are an abundantly gracious and loving and compassionate God. Sometimes it's hard to see that, and sometimes it's hard to trust that, God, especially when life is not going our way, especially when things are not going according to plan. It is very tempting to grab at your seat, God. It is very tempting to take matters into our own hands to think, I have to be the judge. I have to be the worker. I have to be the exactor of revenge. But God... I pray that you would help us to see not only that we need to resist that because it's sin, God, but that we need to step into your way because it's better, because it's good, because there's freedom in it. There's joy in it, God, because when you came to this earth, Jesus, when you came and you walked in our shoes, on our roads, in our homes, that's the way that you chose to willingly suffer for the good of others. If you could turn that evil to good, God, we know that you can turn any evil. Not, not just neutral, God. Not just to something that we have endured. Not just to something that we can get past, God. But to something that is good for our good, for your glory. Give us faith and hope in that, in you. We entrust it to you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.